An unexplained explosion on the coast of Norway has been accompanied by widespread reports of nightmares involving armored giants, while the monster known as the Hulk has recently been spotted in Mongolia. Word from Washington DC, is that, Stark Industries test of their new submarine has been another embarrassing failure for the American technology company. In comments, Senator Harrington Byrd blamed, quote, Tony Stark's playboy attitude, end quote, for the company's lack of quality control. Organized crime is on the rise in New York, currently led by a man known as the Crime Master, who has been described as having a, quote, unique fashion sense. There have also been reports of a helicopter being robbed by a, excuse me, being robbed by a man on very, very, very tall stilts. I suppose that's a unique fashion sense as well. This is Doombot RS33 for the VOL. Zero, one, two. This is, the voice of Latvia. Zero, one, two. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good, or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you, Doombot RM12. My guest for the show this week is Jeet Heer. He's a national affairs correspondent at The Nation, the author of the books In Love with Art and Sweet Lechery, co-editor of a comic studies reader and the superhero reader, the acknowledged living world master of numbered Twitter threads, and as you will hear, a scholar of Jack Kirby's entire career. Welcome, Jeet. Thank you so much for coming by. We are uh, looking today at... Fantastic Four 39 and 40, basically Jack Kirby's work, some script by Stan Lee, Frank Giacoya inks the first half, uh, Vince Coletta inks the second, and Wally Wood also contributes some inks, which I'm sure you'll be talking about. Yeah, so yeah that's actually uh, a very interesting story, which sort of shows where Marvel is, which is that um, Wally Wood is a kind of uncredited collaborator, okay. uh, because Daredevil is in there, uh, and we, we can talk about that. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to know what you think about that. But let, maybe let's do a little bit of an overview of what's what's actually going on in in these issues sure. first. As it starts, uh, the issue of Fantastic Four before this, the Frightful Four had taken them out to the middle of the ocean and then blown up the island that they were on and kind of left them for dead. And they're just kind of floating in floating in the water for a while. They make their way back to New York. There's a gorgeous Jack Kirby collage page with the bicycle chain in the middle of it for some reason get in touch with daredevil dr doom shows up takes over the baxter building and the fantastic four at this point have lost their powers so they spend the entire first half of the story powerless and reed richards is building devices to give them an approximation their powers back and then the second half is they go back to the baxter building and try to force doom out of it uh, and get their powers back of course reed non-consensually turns ben Grimm back into the thing and more or less completely loses it at doom crushes his hands and doom skedaddles and that's 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 the general shape of this story and um i think one thing to say about the story is that it kind of feels a little bit generic to me um and thinking about these comics 
in the sort of context of, you know, like Marvel Comics, the sort of production history and the creative history. Um, I really strongly feel like throughout his career, I think Kirby went through these phases of great bursts of creativity, which would usually last about a year, uh, two years. And then he would have this kind of fallow period of about a year or two where he's uh, consolidating. So that's the rhythm, creativity and consolidation. And uh, right now at issue 39 and 40, he's on the cusp of this great outburst of creativity, which is you know, arguably the greatest period of the Fantastic Four, uh, which is gonna be what I think it really starts with the Inhumans, which you've already seen a hint of, but uh, uh, going on to the Galacticus, uh, the Silver Surfer, the Black Panther, just like, you know, like this amazing outpouring. But right now in issue 3940, like a lot of this is stuff we've seen before, right? It's these consolidating material. Uh, so we've seen, you know, losing power, Ben regaining power, the sort of uh, uh, fight at the end where Ben, like, you know, leaves the group. Uh, this, so there's a lot of them. Um, and the the, the uh, introduction of a co-star, the, the, the group kind of like trying to struggle and then finding they work best together as a team. So so, so it's, it's all kind of there. And also the use of Doom as the kind of counterpoint to Reed Richards, which I think right. is one of the main things that's going on here, uh, where uh, uh, there's the two si uh, sides of the creativity, uh, scientific creativity. The Reed Richards, you know, trying to replicate the power of the Fantastic Four through these devices uh, and kind of failing, and but also interestingly mirrored by Doom, trying to use the Reed Richards technology against them and also kind of failing. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, but, 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 uh, which is very interesting, but uh, it's all stuff we've seen before. So I think one way to look at these issues is that Kirby and Lee um, are in a period of consolidation in between these cycles of creativity, which doesn't mean it's like not interesting, but I, I, I think that's how uh, we have to um, uh, view the, these issues. Do you kind of agree with that or? Yeah, Kirby is also doing an absolutely backbreaking amount of work at this point. You know, he's he's drawing something on the order of four or five complete books a month. He's doing layouts for, for other artists and- I, I have the number and you'll be amused to know, guess how many pages he like uh, drew in uh, June, uh, that were published in June of 65. Like 100, 120, something like that? I don't know, uh, 69. Only 69, nice. nice. Which is relatively low. But then he did for July, another 91. So, oh. <laughs> so, 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 so for this period that we're talking about, it's like, you know, this story is like part of like a period where he's doing 150 pages, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, you know, like as the kind of not just drawing them, which would be phenomenal, but actually, you know, like doing the plotting, the uh, writing notes along the side, which Stanley then works into dialogue. So, so it's just a, a phenomenal amount of creativity yeah. uh, that, that, that's going out there. It's also at a period where Marvel under Lee's editorship, and I think here's where Lee really has to get credit, is consolidating as well in terms of thinking what it means to be a universe. Um, in the early days of like Marvel, like they had this very amusing thing where if Spider-Man showed up, it says, special thanks to Spider-Man magazine for this guest star. So this is like a cameo, as if, you know, like Bob Hope shows up in a Dean Martin movie or something right. like that. Uh, <laughs> whereas like by issue 39 and 40, uh, we're seeing like a much clear effort at like, you know, this is actually a shared consolidated universe. Uh, and this actually influences some of the art decisions that are being made there because Daredevil is a relatively new character. 
uh, had been created by uh, Bill Everett and Stan Lee. Uh, I think Kirby had some sort of input in there as well. But but Bill Everett, you know, who had been struggling with alcoholism, really wasn't able to like you know contribute. Uh, and then they uh, brought in Joe Orlando, and then ultimately, in what Lee at the time thought was a great coup, brought in Wally Wood. And he's actually the first Marvel artist. Uh, you can, you're the expert. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but the first time that a Marvel artist is credited on the cover. Uh, I think it's like the issue of Daredevil. I don't know if it's five yeah, or six. number five. Yeah, uh, it's like uh, Wally Wood's name on the cover in big letters. Yeah, exactly. Which I don't think has ever was ever done before. I, a, around that time, I'm not sure if it was earlier or later, but uh, there's uh, like lead Steve Ditko and Don Heck all get their their yeah. names in big big letters on the cover of an issue of Tales of Suspense. But I'm not I'm not sure which is first. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, so, but it's a really really rare thing that Wall, the Wally Wood is introduced. And um, he does uh, uh, Daredevil, and he um, uh, reconceptualizes the character visually, going from the um, uh, sort of yellow and black thing to this, like, you know, like the Daredevil costume that we know today. And Kirby had been working well in advance of what, uh, and was, always, you know, like a much more um, productive artist than what he would, had used the old uh, uh, costume. So they brought in Wally Wood to you know fix the costume uh, in thirty nine on the cover um, and uh, and all of that. But there's a further interesting kind of cross fertilization, which is not just you want to get the costumes straight across the thing. But in issue forty, there's a kind of device that Kirby introduces to Daredevil stick. Uh, do you remember what that is? The the uh, the, kind of, the kind of the gun cane yes, thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the guy, yeah, exactly. And we have the original art um, from that. And on it, like it's written, you know, uh, give stat to uh, Wally Wood. Right. Uh, and the, so the, because uh, Lee wanted Wood to introduce that component into the Daredevil comic. So, so there's a kind of real cross-fertilization uh, that's, that's going on there with the idea of like, you're really trying to make this into a cohesive comic book. So readers are reading it, reading across the line um, we'll see that it's a very cohesive universe, which, which already kind of had just because, you know, it was really at this point, like, you know, a handful of artists, really Kirby, uh, Ditko, and then, you know, now Wally Wood. Uh, and, and Wood himself did not stay very long because he um, was actually probably the first of the artists to have this kind of creative fight with Lee, uh, where, you know, like he was expected and the Marvel method to do the plotting. Okay. Uh, and he insisted on like, you know, co-creator uh, status, uh, co-writing status and ultimately insisted on one issue that he be credited as the writer and then did not like, you know, take well to editing uh, uh, in the Lee Manor. So, so well before Ditko uh, left and Kirby left, uh, Wally Wood was really the first, you know, Marvel artist to break over this issue. Although Wally Wood didn't really stick around very long on pretty much anything he ever did. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Up to a point, but this is, I think, a particularly yeah. truncated uh, thing. And then, yeah, so I, I think it's actually kind of an important moment yeah. in that sort of um, Marvel production history. So so I, I think, like, when we're looking at the story, one of the things we're looking at is the Marvel Universe consolidating into both terms of the types of stories it's telling and then also consolidating in terms of, like, we're creating a uh, shared universe. So when Daredevil shows up, it's not just, like, he's a special guest star who's making a cameo appearance. He's, like, he's part of this world. 
and we want it to be the same across the line. Yeah, there's a thing that happens in the issue of Fantastic Four before this, and, and the comics that were coming out the same month as number 39. In Daredevil number seven, he's chasing the Submariner across yeah. Manhattan, and that's, that's the Wally Woods story. In Fantastic Four, the Fantastic Four are away from their headquarters. They're out of New York. In Journey into Mystery, over in the Thor thing that Kirby was also drawing, there's a story where there's a kid who's desperately trying to get in touch with, like, he sees Jane Foster being kidnapped. He tries to get in touch with the Avengers. Nobody's there. He try, He sees Daredevil going by outside his window and calls out to him. But Daredevil says, like, I can't talk now. And there's a little, you know, Stanley note. It's like, because he's chasing Submariner across the city over in, Submar yeah. over in Daredevil number seven. He tr uh, tries to get in touch with the Fantastic Four, but nobody is home because the Fantastic Four are out at sea. And that is when the Frightful Four from Fantastic Four attack the Baxter building and Balder in the Thor story comes in and the Frightful Thor think it's the Human Torch and get scared and run away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it also ties into the issue of Avengers that was coming out that month. And so there are little plot points in each one that get echoed in the others. And you don't have to read all of them to understand what's happening in any of them. But if you, if you read more than one or two of them, just the little pieces start fitting together. That was not the first time that Marvel had done that. I think the first time was arguably a thing that was in like Patsy and Hebe and Patsy Walker and Kathy the Teenage Tornado, yeah. right? <laughs> like back in early 1962. But it's the first time they've done it with the superhero characters that specifically. I love that. Yeah, movie. yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is very, which is like, you know, like that's really the seedbed for like, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Like, yeah, totally. like having, you know, like 20 movies that are interlocked in, in all this way. So, so yeah, I, I think, I think we're really seeing the kind of Marvel Universe coming together. I mean, there's a lot of uh, interesting aspects um, to this as well. Like I mentioned, I mean, just like Doom's kind of characterization and his kind of uh, uh, position. Um, I, I, I mentioned uh, the uh, cover of 39 where Doom is kind of like looming over all these characters. There's a giant Doom and yeah. the characters are kind of small. He's kind of like the, the puppet master or something like that. I mean, thinking about it like in terms of the iconography, the, the image, it really evokes that sort of classic image on uh, Hobbes's Leviathan. Of yeah. uh, the Leviathan is this giant, the state. The uh, Leviathan is the government, and the government is like a man made out of many men, and is huge, and is a kind of giant. And that's what Doom is like. He's not just a person; he's a kind of uh, this principle of autocratic government, which, which looms over people. Uh, and I think that that's uh, very interesting. And we kind of get it where there is some attention uh, made to like, you know, showing him in his home country, uh, you know, like lording it over people being the kind of, you know, European autocrat. And I, I, I think that that's a kind of very important thematic in understanding Doom, the kind of, you know, old world um, aristocratic ruler fighting this, you know, scientific American family. That image goes all the way back to the first appearance of Doom. Like he's he's gigantic, and the Fantastic Four is small on the cover of FF number five. Yeah, yeah. Before Latveria was even a gleam that's, in anyone's eye. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's very much a part of who uh, who Doom is. The the other aspect I wanted to talk a little bit about, like in the for this podcast, is like you know some of where Doom kind of like comes from. I mean, I should let listeners know in sort of like fair warning, like you know, there's this like all these disputes about you know Lee and Kirby, and you know, like on the one hand, I would say 
that I have a very reasonable, grounded, factual, <laughs> uh, rational point of view that any normal person should have. But also, like, you know, some people could see me as a Jack Kirby partisan. Uh, <laughs> but, but, are, are those not the same thing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, I do actually think, I mean, my understanding of 1960s Marvel really changed once I started reading the work Kirby did in the 40s and 50s, uh, mostly uh, in conjunction with Joe Simon. And once I started to know a little bit more about the sort of, you know, biography of Jack Kirby and why, you know, some of these issues, um, uh, some of these thematics uh, were in his work really right from the beginning uh, and, and what they might have meant for him. So, I mean, just to you know, give a kind of biographical sketch, which might also you know, explain why the figure of Dr. Doom and later Darkseid um, and earlier the Red Skull all kind of um, played a role. I mean, okay, so you're talking about, you know, Jacob Kurtzberg, you know, who's like born in the ghetto of New York, you know, from an immigrant family, um, which has many old world ties, so much so that when he becomes sick, you know, the rabbis are brought in to do an exorcism to take out the demon that is uh, making him ill. And, you know, goes up, grows up in this kind of very, you know, hardened uh, ghetto with a lot of street fights. Uh, and, you know, in the context of 1930s, late 30s, you know, it sort of has this sort of popular front anti-fascist uh, viewpoint, which comes out in um, the um, uh, Captain America, you know, fighting the Red Skull, um, and but also has very much a sense of the value of group, of like, you know, the family as a kind of arc in this rough society, but not just the family, he, you know, like um, is brought into like the boys' republic, this young boys' group that really, you know, he sees us saving him from a life of crime. Uh, and then that, you know, imbues him with this kind of valuation of like the group, the collective as, you know, the sort of the source of salvation, uh, you know, so he creates not with his, um, he's always involved with groups. He's involved always as a collaborator, uh, you know, first with Joe Simon, his partner, and they have a studio and they create uh, Captain America and Bucky. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, the boy commandos uh, and the newsboy legion. Uh, and then, you know, fights in Europe as a, a, a part of the D-Day army is a, a witness to uh, the liberation of some of the camps in France. You know, returns to America, you know, starts a family uh, in America, you know, and then, you know, helps co-create with Joe Simon romance comics with this new era of domesticity. And then in the sort of 1950s, in the context of sort of, you know, Cold War America and the search for science, as a solution, you know, uh, does a comic strip called Sky Masters. And then also this very interesting comic book uh, for, our, for our understanding of things, Challengers of the Unknown, which again is a kind of team of, um, you know, four uh, men who go through this traumatic experience, a plane crash, and then, you know, become these guys say, well, we've almost lo lost our lives, so we have to commit it to something good and become the sort of Challengers of the Unknown Adventurers. And I want to emphasize them um, as a very important sort of proto-Fantastic Four, not just because of the number four, but because of this Kirby innovation, which is the group that's bond, uh, that's united together uh, through a common experience or a common, common event uh, that has a glue holding them together. The Fantastic Four, like there's some histories of comics that say, well, Marvel saw the success of the Justice League and they wanted to do their version of the Justice League. And the thing is, like the Justice League 
the Fantastic Four are not like the Justice League. I mean, you could say the Avengers are like the Justice League, right? The where you get like a bunch of characters that are the main characters in a in a comic book line, and you bring them together for a team. That's what the Justice League is. That's what the Avengers are. Uh, but the Fantastic Four is that sort of Kirby thematic, like you know, like they they went on this common adventure to go to beat the Russians to space, had the radiation, and have this uh, thing that ties them together. And that's also true later of the X Men. You know, the common experience of being a mutant, true of the Inhumans, the common experience of being this outside group of an alternative line of humanity, true of the Eternals. Uh, it's just a Kirby thing, right? Like, like it's a new way. It's a way of conceptualizing the the superhero group or the adventure group as like, you know, that they have to not just arbitrarily be brought together, as one could argue the Avengers are arbitrarily brought together uh, <laughs> or the Defenders, but, but, but brought together for a narrative reason. Okay. Uh, so, so, so I think the challenge of the unknown, uh, which Kirby did in the mid 1950s for DC, and which was a big success, it was uh, done as a tryout, and then it was given its own book. And Kirby did the first ten issues, and um, and then it continued after him. Um, really, is the sort of uh, proto model for this, um, uh, for the for what the Fantastic Four became. It's also interesting that there's a, some of this investigation of like what a villain who would fight against such a group would be. Yeah. Um, and the villain that he's sort of interested in is the one that sort of combines science with magic. Right. So uh, in um, Challengers of the Unknown, uh, number four, uh, there's a story called The Wizard of Time. Right. Uh, where the challengers uh, fight this kind of time-traveling villain, and they go back to various points in the past, like ancient Athens, uh, the time, Egypt in the time of the pharaohs, uh, and then also go to the future. And there's aspects of this, um, and along the way, they create the myths that have come back to us. Uh, it's also a very curvy theme, right? Like the, the origins of myth are actually in sort of misunderstood science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, and also, I mean, I think it's very similar to a very, the early appearance of Doctor Doom with the um, the thing uh, becoming Blackbeard. Yeah. Yeah, becoming Blackbeard. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, um, and the issue that you, that issue is also inked by Wally Wood. Like, yeah, well, that's I was going to get to that point, which is like the thing that ties it all together. It's inked by Wally Wood. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, which is what makes it a particularly nice issue. This is actually very that combination of uh, Kirby uh, Kirby's pencils with Wood's ink is very strong. It's really odd to look at because so much of the thematic substance of what would become like the Fantastic Four Doctor Doom thing is totally there. And the tone is just completely different. Yes. Like, uh, it doesn't pop off the page the way that what Kirby was doing even a few years later did. Uh, it's it's really beautifully rendered. It's really nice looking, but it doesn't have that incredible kind of kinetic energy and that that like mm -hmm. wild visual invention. Yeah. No. No. I, I think I think that's right. And I think um, uh, I mean one issue is that it was published by DC, uh, which had right. a kind of more you know stately ideal of. Uh, yeah kind of, you know, like art should be, uh, is also maybe coming at a kind of earlier point. Um, well, I should mention with the sort of the characters of the uh, challenges of the unknown, they're not very heavily characterized and they're kind of a little bit indistinguishable, but to the extent that they do have characterization, like there's like, you know, the egghead doc, and there's a kind of rough, more rough and tumble guy, uh, so uh, there's, and then when one guy's a kind of like a hotshot um, a jet fighter, you know, like who, uh, but, but you're right. I, I think that the, the kind of, um, 
go for broke kind of narrative storytelling uh, isn't quite there. It's a more kind of static universe. Uh, partially, yeah, I mean, it's still coming out of that older comics vision, uh, which is that like the point of the heroes is to restore the world to the way it was before. Right. And the, the Fantastic Four is coming at this later point, and it's true of like all of Kirby's uh, subsequent work, where the, the, um, the hero is transformative and is living in a universe that's been transformed by their existence. Uh, and so therefore, you know, a world which has the Fantastic Four is not gonna be a stable world. And the, so it's probably a difference between a 1950s sensibility and a 1960s sensibility, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, the, the, the challenges that still exist in kind of like a static world where like there's wrongdoing and then you bring the, everything back to uh, the way it was at the end. And uh, whereas like the, the, the Marvel comics um, really, I mean, I would argue even before the, the superhero comics, you see that a little bit in the mar monster comics. And so maybe the monster comics were kind of uh, a part of this, where, where it's really about the introduction of something new in the world that transforms that world and, uh, and is disruptive. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think there's also that element of like kind of like family uh that the, the challenges are just like these guys you know they're kind of you know <laughs> brought together like but once you introduce this element of them being a family and then having all this sort of squabbles of a family that also like really uh changes the uh uh, uh dynamic as well um so yeah i i think that's i think that's right um and i i think the uh villain i mean i i would say like in terms of um, the villain as well, like there's, um, he has one aspect which is very proto doom and which is very a theme that runs from Kirby, uh, from the um, Red Skull uh, to Doctor Doom to Darkseid, which is the real villain is fascism. The real villain is a person that wants to dominate the world. It's not like the bank robber. You know, Kirby did his share of bank robber stories, but that's not like the real problem in the world is some guy wants to take some money. The real problem is that there are people who, you know, want to become kind of like, um, um, uh, want power and want to be the boss and want to uh, call the shots and want to other people to grovel in front of them the way Doom does. Yeah. And, and I have this kind of like psychology of domination, which I think that issue brings out very well, like in terms of um, Doom was initially happy because he thought he had defeated the Fantastic Four. And once he learns that he hadn't, that's when he wants his revenge, right? Uh, so I, I, I think that that's, um, uh, that's exactly right. I, I, I think thematically it's very interesting um, as well that there's a complicating factor uh, that that issue of domination comes into the heroes as well. And the characterization of Reed Richards is, I think, very interesting in this uh, thing where he really, you know, is the kind of, uh, you know, the, the captain who must have his own way. There's one thing where he's talking to the Human Torch and he says, I'm not interested in your feelings, boy. Let's see you fly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and I think some of the Stanley stuff that makes me cringe a little bit is that the 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 other characters except for Ben Grimm are seen as going along with this thing like you know Sue Storm is kind of saying like oh Reed you know like uh, you're the leader we have to listen to you and uh, um, I I think you know there's been a lot of people who've kind of done work on this with um, uh, you know regard to like looking at the images 
I'm looking at the words. Kirby without words, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Kirby without words. And then kind of trying that, you know, like actually Sue Storm in her actions doesn't quite seem uh, as subservient. Uh, and that would later come out with like, you know, other Kirby characters uh, like uh, Big Barda, right? Like who is like, you know, obviously uh, nobody's servant. Um, uh, but I do actually think like, I mean, it is very impressive the way that Lee does bring out this domineering, you know, I mean, Reed Richards is a bit of a dick. And I think that that, that, that is like in there and, and it complicates our sense of what's going on. And I think the characterization of Doom, I, I think what really works well is Lee's dialogue for Doom. I, I love this one where he's lording over Ben Grimm, who's on the floor and saying, brave words, you orange-skinned misanthrope. Useless words. So, so I mean, that's a great phrase, you orange-skinned misanthrope. There, there's some fantastic dialogue in there that my, my favorite bit of dialogue in the whole thing is, is you know, Ben just kind of pressing onward and saying, you know, Mr. Maybe I'm just too dumb to collapse, too ugly to die. I'll let you figure out the reasons. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that it's, it's a great line. It's bold and also like terrifying and sad. Like, yeah, that's right, that's right. yeah, yeah. yeah no, the sort of the pathos of Ben Graham is yeah. a very strong aspect of these books and the, the, and the villain dialogue. I mean, like, you know, since this podcast is what to do, I mean, like the, the, the way in which, um, that sort of Stanley Grinder eloquence does work, you know, wonderfully well with um, with uh, Doctor Doom. Like in terms of as a consolidating story that, like, you know, gives us the main components, it does give us that. Like both, like Doom psychology reads kind of like flaws, and the sort of you know the the group dynamic or tension within the Fantastic Four. Like that's all there. And my, my favorite read being a jerk moment here is actually at the very, very end of the story. There's this incredible scene where the thing is crushing Doom's hands. And like, that's not the only hand injury in the story. Like five pages earlier, we get uh, like Daredevil's been trying to attack Doom and his hands are completely numb and he's out of the fight. Mm. Uh, and Kirby lingered on like this hand injury. He, I don't think he wrote anything about it in the marginal notes of that page, but... Uh, a few issues later, we'll be talking about in a couple episodes, uh, there's a scene where we just see Doom reading a newspaper and then he tears up the newspaper and Kirby's marginal note was like, that hurts his hands. And he's like favoring his hands after that. And yeah, for an artist, like that's that's a big thing. That has to be an enormous fear. So the thing is crushing Doom's hands, crushing his gloves. Doom is only talking about his weapons. He's not talking about his hands. Yeah. The thing starts just pounding on him and ripping up his armor. And in the dialogue, Reed Richards is coming in from the side saying, no, Ben, don't do that. You'll kill him. No, don't, don't do that, Ben. <laughs> we don't see him in the image. Like he, it's not anything Kirby did. Like uh, when we see him again uh, in what Kirby drew, uh, he's kind of bent, slumped over on the floor with the rest yeah. of the team. But he's getting in there and saying like, no, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What a jerk. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Which is like, um, and there are ways in which one could sort of see the kind of group, um, uh, the production history and the, the narrative that's unfolding um, as being played out later in the seventies, Kirby would draw, draw the strip, you know, what if the original Marvel bullpen yeah. became the fantastic Four, and, you know, like, uh, Lee is Reed Richards and uh, Kirby is Ben Grimm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so, then this, so there's a lot 
kind of going on there, this kind of like, you know, constant state of rebellion against the kind of boss that you kind of think uh, uh, is a bit of a dick. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's, uh, I think there's a, um, a lot um, uh, going on there, like in terms of uh, it's both psychologically rich as a narrative. And then one can also read this kind of production history into it. Yeah, that that later what if story, which was really the last time that he drew a full on Fantastic Four story, it's weirdly almost just overtly affectionate toward Lee. Yes, it's just not something you would necessarily expect to see from the Kirby of '76. But yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always kind of struck by that, and I never really have a sense of like if they're falling out with like how complete their falling out was because you know, there's that there's that silver surfer thing that they did a couple of years after that which is 100 pages it's long like it's a substantial yeah. chunk of work and then obviously later they're at loggerheads but uh just it, it's so hard to parse out that relationship yeah yeah no no that's right that's right yeah yeah well i mean i mean i think that the i mean the time he's doing that fantastic part he's obviously back at marvel had been lured back uh and if he was having trouble at Marvel, it was through like underlings who's like, you know, kind of editors at a lower level and not Lee. Uh, and there's a kind of, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it'd be, it'd be, I mean, one would hope for a, a full dress biography of Kirby that you know, <laughs> one day uh, addresses this, but yeah, no, I think that's right. The other thing that, that I'm really curious about his artwork in here, uh, we've seen collage pages from him before, but he smacks us with a, giant full page collage four pages into this story yes. four pages into number 39 where was that that kind of almost avant-garde-ish impulse coming from well no, no that's a very good question i think people have kind of struggled to kind of find it except that i mean kirby's like living in new york uh or i guess at this point maybe long island but he's, he can come into the city and he has kind of easy access and one sees already in the um, uh, the work of the 50s, some interest in kind of like abstract art. There's a kind of like uh, world of your dream story that, you know, borrows a lot from sort of surrealism uh, and kind of like, you know, like um, even before the collages, like I often think of like kind of the um, background detail in the Fantastic Four, like they're these odd sculptures and, uh, you know, like, like uh, 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 little bits. So I don't know if that we, we fully know the kind of biographical kind of roots. And I actually think like in some ways the printing technology kind of maybe defeated him a little bit. Yeah. The, the, the most interesting collages, I mean, I think he's, he did great collages, but those were not for publication. The most interesting collages uh, I've seen from Kirby are all stuff he did for like privately at home for his own kind of uh, use. So, but, but yeah, no, it's definitely the, the case that like he um, is very interested in trying to bring in this kind of visual element. I think one uh, way to maybe think about it thematically is he's very interested in sort of transcendence and like, you know, going into new realms as a narrative thing. And the collages are one way to kind of maybe explore that. Like, like you're kind of, and, and like historically, this is a period of like kind of new frontier, right? Of right. The, both the space race and this kind of, you know, like we're going to conquer new areas of consciousness and the kind of, you know, the visuality that I think came out in 2001 which Kirby later adapted, but like he's already kind of like, you know, um, uh, struggling or trying to figure out ways in which to visit, vi um, visually um, uh, describe that. Um, it would be interesting. I mean, there's another artist, uh, well, there's two other artists who like kind of 
uh, have this same interest, and, and some of it might have come from them. Uh, one is most obviously Ditko with the stuff in like, you know, Doctor Strange. And even before Doctor Strange, like, you know, the way he would draw netherworlds and these kind of non-objective realities. Yeah, and the, the same month that uh, the first part of this comes out is the issue of Strange Tales, where he draws, it like, eternity. Like, he, this is where he, yes. like, busts out the complete amazing, like, otherworldly visuals. Yeah, and the, the other aspect, and I don't know, I mean, I have no documentation for this, and I'm not even sure if Kirby would have been aware of this, but I was looking at some of um, Jesse Marsh's John Carter of uh, Mars, huh. uh, which was done in the early 50s for Dell, and then reprinted in the early 60s by Goldkey. Um, and a lot of the background detail, the Martian cityscape, the Martian art, the, the, the character uh, things that the Martians have on their clothing, all are very strikingly kind of like abstract and have this kind of like fantastic element. So I, I think that there's a kind of um, emerging uh, aesthetic among cartoonists uh, working in this. And, uh, you know, like it would be very surprising if it wasn't done with some awareness of, you know, uh, what was happening in abstract uh, expressionism. The theme that you mentioned of that Kirby brought to the Fantastic Four of exploration, of pushing outward, of doing that formally as well, contrasts really strongly with the fact that this story is literally about recapturing the home that they've been forced out of and recapturing the selves and the bodies that they've been forced out of. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm wondering if that's that's also a tendency you see in, in like other in other Kirby stories. Yeah, that, no, that's a really interesting kind of um, uh, tension that I, and I, I do think it is the kind of almost classic Cold War tension of like, you know, on the one hand, this fear of the alien and of what's outside, but then also America is this kind of superpower that's kind of like expanding globally and absorbing and interacting with the world in a way like it had never before. Um, and so, I mean, like one, one can kind of see that uh, in what's coming up next, which is the Inhumans, right? Which is this kind of, you know, like uh, group that's both, you know, themselves like uh, this uh, uh, amazing uh, uh, otherworldly, you know, inhuman, like they're not like us, but they're also a tribe. They have these kind of like communal norms and they've been kept private and in secret and they have to decide, should they come out? Should they join the wider world? And I have to also think with the Inhumans and with a lot of this other stuff, it is also partially, this is the story of Jewish acculturation and of the sort of, you know, the, the move from, you know, Europe and then later the ghetto in America to this kind of, you know, um, a wider assimilation into a, like an American society, a pluralistic American society. And uh, when, I mean, I think the Inhumans are perhaps like, uh, for me, that's how I kind of see them. They're kind of like, you know, these um, Jewish family from the East side that suddenly has to decide, are they gonna, you know, like intermarry with this other family with, uh, you know, like the Aryan, you know, Johnny <laughs> Storm. And the, oh uh, but you know, like, like no, but it's, it's a thematic that one sees in, uh, you know, like the work of Philip Roth and Saul Bellow. And I think, I think Kirby was, you know, like, I mean, that was his life experience, right? The move from the, you know, immigrant ghetto into the kind of like the suburbs and into beyond that, like becoming an American cultural figure. And he's kind of like negotiating those tensions, like all the time between, you know, like, you know, opportunity and exploration as against kind of like retaining aspects of the homeland. 
Wow. A lot to wrap my brain around. That's fantastic. And since, since you mentioned, like, you know, we were talking about like the Cold War and these issues of, you know, like assimilation uh, and, and, and whatnot. I, I mean, I mean, I do really see the Fantastic Four as a Kennedy era pro, uh, product, right? Yeah. And of that sort of like the, the, the new frontier liberalism. And one can see in the sort of Fantastic Four, the, the components of that Democratic Party coalition. So Reed Richards is the kind of, you know, technocrat that sort of, you know, John Kennedy or Robert McNamara figure, you know, who's like uh, perhaps a little too brainy for his own good and, and might be leading people into disaster. Uh, and uh, Ben Grimm is the kind of, you know, the classic you know, working class eth- uh, ethnic, uh, you know, who's kind of like marked as a little bit different both by his speech and his kind of like, you know, appearance. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Johnny Storm is the kind of like the young person that's kind of like, you know, excited by the youthfulness of, of this new uh, Kennedy and, and and what's going on there. Uh, and Sue Storm is like, you know, the, the kind of like, you know, the feminist concerns that were going on with, you know, Betty Friedan uh, writing about the sort of like the housewife as the sort of, you know, invisible woman of American culture. And then later also bringing in the Black Panther, who I believe they talk about as becoming a member of the Fantastic Four, who's like, you know, the kind of uh, a racialized minority. So there is a sense in which part of the dynamic that's being set up here is contrasting that American coalition as against this kind of like old world tyrant right. of, in the form of Dr. Doom. The, from from this sort of imaginary version of the old world, this like 1920s Bavarian village kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, which, is, which is the old world that Kirby's family escaped from. Like this is the old world that he, I mean, he grew up hearing stories from his mother. Uh, this is the, the uh, old world, but also coming out of the sort of, you know, the 1930s universal Gothic movies that he loved as a kid of, you know, Frankenstein and uh, whatnot. Uh, whatnot. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that there is that uh, component of it, but I mean, like having a kind of like um, a politics. I mean, I, I think, I mean, one interesting thing about Dr. Doom is that he's a superhero with a foreign policy. Right. Like, you know, he, he runs a state, he has diplomatic immunity, he kind of um, has, uh, it, it embodies a kind of a principle that's out there in the world of you know, autocratic government. Um, I wish I, I should have written it down, but there's a movie serial, uh, which you might know about, which is the actual visual basis for uh, Dr. Doom. It could be the Phantom. I'll, I'll see if I can... Um, uh, find it, and I'll send you an email about it. But he it is a kind of like a it's the man in the iron mask, yeah, uh, which might also have been an influence. Uh, but it is the um, uh, is a very direct kind of bearing on uh, Doom. Yeah, the same the same month that Fantastic Four Five came out, a Tales to Astonish or Tales of Suspense, one of those I forget which has a Kirby story called the Monster in the Iron Mask, and the Iron <laughs> Mask is the same design. It is the Doom design. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, I'd be very some sort of micro historian could actually look into this and see if you know the man in the iron mask was showing, or this old movie serial <laughs> was showing, like yeah. you know, in uh, uh, early 1961 or whatever in Long <laughs> Island. And you could probably like you know, uh, I, I mean, Kirby is very much being fed off. Like um, I mean, the uh, movies uh, like all the time is a constant new source of enrichment as well as going by his memories. There's a later Fantastic Four 
where like they go into a planet that's like run like um, 1930s uh, Chicago gang. Yeah. And that's actually like it's a Star Trek episode. Like you can, yeah. you can literally map a like this Star Trek episode appeared. Kirby watched it. He needed it. Like, you know, he was already kind of leaving Marvel. So he didn't want to put a lot of work into it. He just like used that. But but I mean, like later on, I mean, he goes through Kamendi and the demon and the, um, the other stuff. Uh, one can kind of, almost exactly map out which movies uh, were like Kirby was watching. Like there's, you know, like there's a, there's a comedy where that's kind of based on the Amityville horror, uh, you know, like this. So, so like literally, uh, yeah. And obviously comedy owes a lot to kind of the apes. Right. Uh, so, so, so there's a uh, way in which the, that sort of uh, movie culture is like, you know, constantly, you know, replenishing uh, Kirby and, and as part of the circle of life, his work itself is kind of, you know, become the foundation for Hollywood as Crazy. we know Jeet here. Thank you so much again for joining us. Next week, Rob Milne of Marvel by the Month will be here to talk about two stories published much later that take place just after this one. Stan Lee meets Doctor Doom number one, and Spider-Man of the Fantastic Four number one. Meanwhile, if you've got any questions about anything having to do with Doctor Doom, this show, or Latvarian culture in general that you'd like us to answer on the show, the address to email them to is faithfulretainerboris at voiceoflatveria.com. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel Nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Walk for the VOL. Douglas Walk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel comic story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom commands you to order it. <laughs> Zero, one, two. This is the voice of Latvia. Zero, one, two. Tomorrow, on That Which Lies Beyond, we discuss the great low-car mystery of 1972. The International Cold War briefly thawed when the alien Lokar claimed he was the herald of a massive invasion force, and somehow melted a group of trees. But tensions rose again in the wake of conspiracy claims about the true nature of Lokar. Was he a robot? A hologram? A hoax? Or an avatar of genuine peril? We'll investigate, tomorrow, on That Which Lies Beyond, here on the VOL. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die. Mm-hmm.